0: Travis Bader, and this is the Silvercore podcast. Silvercore has been providing its members with the skills and knowledge necessary to be confident and proficient in the outdoors for over 20 years. And we make it easier for people to deepen their connection to the natural world. If you enjoy the positive and educational content we provide, please let others know by sharing, commenting, and following so that you can join in on everything that Silvercore stands for. If you'd like to learn more about becoming a member of the Silvercore club and community, visit our website at silvercore.ca. After 26 years in the army serving twice in Afghanistan, our guest today brings a wealth of knowledge and experience to his chosen profession as a BC conservation officer. Welcome to the Silvercore podcast, my friend Ron LeBlanc.
1: How you doing, Trav? Well, this is a first, isn't it? It's a first and it's been a bit of to-do to get it going and we're here and we're doing it. So, First time in British Columbia that a conservation officer has come
0: on and talked on a podcast? Yeah, so no pressure. <laughs> well, you know, you've got a really interesting history, interesting background. I put some queries out online through social media, through mm-hmm. forums of... Just you know, I didn't name who you were, but uh, if anybody had questions for a CEO, and I think we had some interesting ones that kind of came up there. Yeah. But you know, before we get into that, I thought it would be fun just for people to get to know you, get mm-hmm. to know you, your background, kind of how you got into where you are are now, and you yeah. were in cadets
1: as well when you were younger too. I weren't was you? a cadet, proud cadet, yeah, yeah, for sure, and certainly led me to where I am today. So. I think it's done a lot for a lot of people.
0: Yeah. Myself, I know it, uh, it did a lot. I was doing a podcast with Sean Taylor, XJTF2, and he's like, oh, you went to Vernon? I went to Vernon. I don't. Yeah. I know a lot of people across Canada
1: that have gone to the Vernon Cadet Camp. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, every time I drive by there and you look at those red buildings, those World War II structures <laughs> that are still there and yes. you kind of pick out the one that you maybe stayed at or, you know, had a... Had a crush on a girl there, and that's the hut (laughs) that she was in, or whatever. In yes, I remember those, and you know the the big parade square and the standing out and the sweating, sweating on a parade, and all the little where the foundation of the discipline was built. Yeah, I remember first time there, we're forming up
0: on Sicily Square, and then uh, getting all your kit. And I'm like, what did I get myself into? I'm going to be gone for a few weeks, and they're yelling and screaming at me, and and then it was six weeks after that one. How did you get into that? Um,
1: well, I, as a kid, I played with G.I. Joe's and, you know, wore camouflage and hid in the bushes and, you know, uh, you know, watched the eighties the war uh, movies and, you know, loved all the watch mash and I, I just, I was always sort of interested in it, but I never really thought about joining or how, how that looked as a kid. I just wasn't there. Yeah. Um, but as a young first nations kid in, in in the big city kind of outside of my element and I started hanging with the wrong crowd and, and I got into trouble. Yes. Nothing serious, but enough trouble that I was told to do some community service. Mm-hmm. And, uh, one of the things of community service was c- c- cadet corps. I did not know about what a really, a cadet corps thing was, and so I, I kind of thought it was sort of military and I was sort of interested because you know I was already a general because I was playing with my <laughs> soldiers and whatnot and um, so my mom uh, had brought me down you know very willfully to take me to a cadet corps and the one that I recall as a little kid was the the Beauty Street Armory in Vancouver with the by BC place with the tanks out front and that's the only sort of rec you know facility that I recognize as military and that's the only reason I chose that. And so my mom dropped me off there and that was on a, I think it was a Wednesday. And I got enrolled and and I think there was some paperwork that they had to sign to, for X amount of community service hours they had to. Mm. <clears throat> so that was a Wednesday and, and um, I learned that the next Friday, two days later, that Cadet Corps was going to, Uh, chilliwack cfb chilliwack for a shooting thing and this would have been in september i think and um the very next day on the thursday we went to now the defunct westland surplus and Mm -hmm. and uh, i got some combats and some ill-fitting boots and whatnot and got kitted out and then, then the next day on the friday i was at the armory and on a bus to chilliwack and Slept in a giant building and with a bunch of people I didn't know and it was a little, everything felt awkward and, and, um, the next day I got to fire at 22, which is the first firearm I ever got to fire. And then once that, you know, uh, in between, I'm sure I was getting yelled at and move (laughs) here and move there and eat this and hurry up and and then I got to fire the FN C1, uh, on the next day. And that was a big, huge seven, six, two rifle. Mm-hmm. And I was, uh, you know, probably a hundred pounds soaking wet. And, um, and it just, everything was just a blur and I was just ecstatic. I was soaking wet, tired, hungry. And I was like, I'm, I'm now enjoying this. And so <laughs> the very next parade night, I guess it would have been Wednesday or whatever, I. I, had, I didn't even have a cadet uniform yet, so they still had to size me. And so, you're learning drill and getting yelled at by the sergeants. And it was the first sort of structure I had in my life. And it was the first time I met um, some adults, male role models. I hadn't had that before. Mm-hmm. Some of these are cadet instructors, the adults were the real sort of first, yeah, male role models. That, And I still keep in touch to some of them to this day because it really it changed – my path I was going down the wrong path and it and it certainly showed me a different path that was that was available to me and I learned that you know if you put the work in you put the time in there's rewards at the end of it and I also learned about instant discipline mm. where I hadn't had that before so you got corrected immediately and I that, that's what I needed I needed that guidance and that correction and I I just I liked it. I loved it. And and uh, I needed a focus. And <clears throat> I remember standing there and every every night at the beginning of the night, they'd inspect each troop, would pet their, put their best cadet dressed, that's in his uniform, pressed and everything mm-hmm. forward. And the regimental sergeant major would pick the two and he would decide who's best dressed for that night. And they would, they would give them this little drill cane and called it stick man. And you're the stick man for the night. Mm. So you got a point of pride of, taking that cane around the night, knowing that you had the best uniform. Mm -hmm. Boots were polished, you know, ironing and all the lint was gone and the haircut and it was, you were, so I tried to get that and every week, you know, I didn't, I wasn't even selected and, you know, the odd time I was selected to be the guy and I didn't quite make it and then it just drove me more to try harder and harder and eventually I became the stick man and that was a pretty proud moment
0: for me. Isn't that funny how people crave that, those boundaries, those brackets, whether you're young or you're old, I think everybody wants to know where their boundaries are. Yeah. And, you know, I I learned that in just working with other people and managing people. I'd be like, I I would want someone just to leave me alone. Trust me, I can do this. I know how to do things. Right. So I would, I would do the same for somebody else. And that can be misinterpreted as somebody not caring. Mm -hmm. If you provide those boundaries and let a person know when they're outside of it, especially at a young age, holy crow, what, what that does for a person as they get older. And I know the cadet system did a lot from, for me when mm-hmm. I look at others around me that were, um, who I was hanging out with, similar to you, they didn't end up in the same place. Yeah, And I can't say it was 100% the
1: that cadet system or the discipline system but i can definitely say it was a contributing factor for sure and just look what happens when you don't put any boundaries or left or right of arcs on someone and see how that turns out totally so then you decided okay army that's for me i want to be well and my my world was still small then and i only knew about the cadets and i kind of knew that there was a Uh, a regimental affiliation to a reserve unit or militia unit and the regular force units. And so I got a little bit of exposure to those guys and every now and then they would take a deserving uh, cadet on an exercise with them. And uh, a couple of years into it, I I happened to be one of those deserving cadets and I got to go on an exercise with the, with the army. And, and um, that's when I realized that that as soon as I could, I'm joining the military Mm. and I was so eager I attempted to join in grade 10. I hadn't graduated grade 10 yet. And I just wanted out of the situation I was in at home, I needed to get away and I wanted to just go and join the military. So I went to the recruiting office and they're like, no, no son, you need grade 10 Mm. to graduate grade 10. And I'm like, I have to go back because I had quit school and everything and I wasn't doing well in school, I wasn't doing, I, I was just focused on getting into the military. So mm. then the recruiter told me, you need to go back in minimum grade 10 and your parents got assigned for you. So I went back to grade, re-enrolled in school cause I got kicked out of school for, you know, attendance and fighting. And I was, a, you know, like I said, down that bad path. And then the, the recruiter told me you need to get your grade 10. So I went back to school and I had to focus, at had a mission, became the top student that year. Did you really? I did. I got a, they even gave me a $300 bursary. Holy crow. And uh, I brought my mom with me to the recruiter and I had my letter of being the top student, my grade 10 diploma. And I'm like, I'm joining the military. Wow. All right. And so I did. I joined the military. And I, you know, later on in life, I had to, I paid for it later because I had to get, I wanted my grade 12 and, and uh, you go to work and then after you go to night school and, and that, you know, I really should have just completed my grade 12 and then joined after. Mm. You know, I was too eager mm. uh, to join and, but I sort sure of paid for it. Like it was, it sucked racing home and sh- shoving food down your neck and then going to class at night and <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a bit of work. I was lucky to go through, you know,
0: school system wasn't, uh, school's not built for everybody. Some yeah. people do really well in school. I like look at my daughters; she's doing fantastic in school. Yeah. My son does great as well and. For me, I think it was five different high schools that I ended up going to.
1: Like, yeah, I went to three. Yeah? Um, I went to Templeton, uh, Van Tech, and Britannia. Mm. Yeah, so East Van Boy. Yeah. And yeah, I struggled in school. You know, I was the, often the only brown person in the room. And sometimes, you know, I was, uh, I stuck up for myself. Sure. Put it that way. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Um
0: well, in school, I could see that being difficult. In the, in the army, I,
1: was that ever an issue? Uh, yeah. I yeah. was often the only brown person in the room Yeah, and I joined, when I elected to join, the Oka crisis was going on. Oh, right. And I was back home visiting um, my family in Manitoba where I'm originally from and, and we're from a reserve called Ebenflow. Mm-hmm. It's a Jibway reserve. And the Oka thing was in full swing. Mm. And it was, I was not popular amongst my grandma and, and my uncles and aunts to join the military. But that, for whatever reason, it didn't bug me or deter me. I still wanted to join. And because I had grown up with me not being afraid of who I am, mm. I didn't think I would stand up to any challenge in the military that way as well. Mm. So it didn't, I already had to been exposed to it. So I didn't care. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't afraid of it. Like, bring it on. Like... If, I'm, I'm still just, I'm not any better than you, but I'm not any worse. So,
0: you know, the problem with, we spent the, uh, the day yesterday hanging out and I got to see what you do with, uh, for work. And it's, uh, I tell you this much, uh, if I were to go back in time a little bit, I think I'd want to be a conservation officer. I mean, that's totally suited to somebody with an ADHD lifestyle mm-hmm. who's self-motivated and who, uh, loves the outdoors. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, just fantastic. But the problem that, uh, sometimes we'll talk ahead of time and there's a lot of really good details that you left out of those two mm. stories that you just told, but, um, um, maybe it's for the best that so we don't, uh, <laughs> release all of that information. Yeah. Um, you decided what, after 26 years, now I, I want to get into the CO service.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's always been, I've always been interested in outdoors and nature and animals and critters and, and law enforcement, you know, I've always had a, there, it was there, Mm. but I just didn't know what that looked like or what I thought maybe it was a park ranger. I didn't know, I just know I wanted to do that.
2: Mm. And I didn't
1: really know what that was, what agency is attached to that. Mm. Um, and so I had gotten back from my, I had done a little research online and I, you know, you needed a degree or diploma and I didn't have. I had some of that training in the military and we use some accreditations from, you know, other universities gives us equivalencies in some of the training and courses we do and whatnot. And so I just didn't think I was qualified. I didn't meet their minimum expectations, what they're asking for. And, and I was in a bit of a slump after my second deployment and wasn't really sure if I wanted to stay in the military. And uh, so I, I took a chance and I applied I, I sent. I didn't apply. I sent an email mm. um, to the recruiting service or to the recruiting email. Yeah. Just in a just to see what they'd come back with. You yeah. know, As a kind of a lie. I had pl- I applied for DFO before that actually, and got. I wrote the test and and uh, listened to their talk, and it was kind of what I wanted to do, but not really. It just was a little bit too specific. Too. I wanted more than just. I mean, the DFL are great, but I. You know, I kind of wanted something a little different than that as well. A broader spectrum. A broader, yeah. And so, anyways, I get an, I send out an email and I get an email back, and lo and behold, the recruiting sergeant is a guy I served with in Afghanistan.
0: What are the odds? <laughs> I, I didn't know.
1: His name's Mike was Mike Soli, and he was a an officer, and he was in the psyops platoon. And I had worked the platoon I was, or the the job I did work closely with the siOS platoon. So he knew me, knew my reputation. And uh, I asked him, um, hey, man, like you have a similar background to me. You're a CEO. And like, well, how would that go? I know. You don't have a, a natural resource law enforcement degree like they're asking for.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He goes, well, I have some education and I have some relevant experience. And they took that as good enough. And he says, all I can do is is just get you to apply and we'll look at it. Mm. So I put my package together, sent it off. And then while I was deployed on my second time overseas in, in Afghanistan, I got an email from the recruiting section saying that I got hired and i would be posted to mission. And uh, and you have to be in the academy in like a month. And I'm no. halfway through my deployment and it was heartbreaking because no I had to decline – uh, that opportunity. I was in 2013, um, but the good news is they said, "Well, you'll you'll be on a list, eligibility list, for a year, and and uh, if if we're still hiring next year for those positions, and depending on where you ranked, you don't have to go through the whole system again." Right. So I came back from my deployment, and I immediately canceled all my full time contracts because I didn't want to be have anything to hold me back. Mm-hmm. So I was now a reservist. Again, the part-time soldier and waiting for the call. And I think it was around May that, yeah, it was, no, maybe it was later than that. Because I, it would have been in July or August that sure. I got the, Yep, yeah, you're going to the academy. And this academy started, I think, the first week of September of that year in Hinton, Alberta. And so, uh, yeah, a couple a couple of weeks later, the recruiting sergeant, Mike Soley, that I mentioned, Swung by my house with a giant cardboard box full of gear <laughs> uniforms and duty belts and you know, you know, and the rest of the the good stuff was delivered to the academy. But at the end I got my initial set and I had no even clue how to put a duty belt on or how it clips together I didn't know any of that. How exciting. Very exciting. And I I don't I had the new all the brand new toy feel, right? You know, flashlights and blah blah blah. So yeah, and then I started my journey as a conservation officer in September, and I did my my uh, recruit training. Yeah, and uh, and then I, my probation period after that, and my first posting was Burns Lake. Well, you did pretty good on your uh, on your training there, didn't you? Didn't you uh, come top your class? I was voted valedictorian, which which is pretty special because it's it's voted by your peers. That's pretty cool. Um, and I had. I was just—I was twice the age of everybody there. Mm. I was forty-one when I went through, and most people were in their early twenties. And the academy, um, all the classes that were that I took—I'm I, not saying I'm all that, but I didn't struggle with anything. Mm. What I struggled with was my the, the age gap with my peers, mm. and, and you know they just had different. Interests and motivations than I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, it took me a really long time to get to that point in in life to to be there, and I was so just grateful to be there. And I made a point of just every day working, doing the best I could, and doing doing as much as I could to make sure that I'm standing on the parade at the end for to receive my badge. Wow!
0: So your first deployment when you came out of training, you're you said you're in Burns Lake, there. Yeah.
1: What was that like? Well. <laughs> <laughs> I knew where Burns Lake was because uh, for a stint in the military, I did a four-year uh, recruiting sergeant job in BC, and I was in a specialized recruiting unit at the time that was for diversity recruiting, and I specialized in, in First Nations and uh, getting First Nations to apply to the military. there is The representation in the military was quite low. Mm. I happened to be the right color, and they really wanted me to, do that and I really enjoyed that Uh, it was one of the highlights of my my career was that four year stint and and because of that I did a lot of road show traveling I mean in the SUV packed with gear and going to reserves and talking to the elders and doing presentations and Burns Lake had passed through a number of times Mm -hmm. so I knew where it was my wife didn't know where it was (laughs) and we were had a condo in Poco and she was established as a teacher and I was just about to start a new job and i had now was only doing the reservist thing because i didn't want to commit to any work for obvious reasons and so we we elected to do a a road trip north to camping and to come up to burns lake to see where we're going to be living and meet the the officers that i'd be working with sure and my sergeant was at the time was in smithers an hour and a half up the road from burns lake so we, we made a bit of a road trip and camping trip and then we met my supervisor, my future supervisor and some of the guys I was gonna work with. Got to see the area and and um, you know, next thing you know, I was at the academy and then, then we're looking at trying to buy a house when we posted here and all that fun stuff. Well what'd your wife think of Burns Lake? Oh it's it's small. It's a small <laughs> town, it's like two thousand people. It's a rough for it's like for game warden work, amazing. yeah, yeah. for her, she's a French immersion teacher. Uh, there is no French immersion uh, program there now, but at the time there was, and so she got a job um, teaching French immersion there at one of the at the local elementary schools. so I mean all that worked, mm. and they hired her on the spot because they really need you know qualified teachers there and and so we made it we I mean we had a great time there. Um, we did our two year posting there and, and then, uh, I think it wasn't big enough for us and, and p- law enforcement in a small town has its challenges. Yeah. I
0: was going to ask you about that at some point here. That's going to be,
1: uh, interesting. Yeah. And, um, it was one of the m- motivating, they were going to potentially get rid of the French immersion program. So it was that for her and she really wanted to ste- ste- teach the French program and, and the town was a little too small. Or I just felt I was almost trapped at home a lot of the time. Mm. Uh, you, when you're you off duty and you go out, people know who you are. Uh, mm. They know you're the game warden mm. and you're never really off duty. Uh, someone wants to talk to you about something, which is fine if they want you. Know, but you, you just kind of want your time when it's your time. You need that to recharge or they would, people would, you know, I've had people come to my house when I'm not there. Banging on the door, demanding I give back their seized antlers or what or something mm. like, and it's, it's just not uh, a family uh, situation I I want. And I could see that, yeah, yeah, and it just never felt like you could truly just relax and unwind, and you know, go to the restaurant and you recognize the cook from a file that you know.
0: Yeah, that's got to be the joys of small town <laughs> policing. Like <laughs> yeah. anywhere, it's uh, yeah, you're you're. You're gonna have to be walking around with your head in
1: a swivel, and yeah. Uh, and I like to go out into the town and enjoy restaurants and you know all that stuff. And I just felt I was uh, was trapped in a small town like that. And so we kind of looked for an alternative posting that when it came available and when when a uh, when a town that we wanted maybe had come up, we would put it we put a package together, and then there's a bit of a competition to see who gets it, and then mm. that's and so we we ended up moving to Williams Lake. And we did three years in Williams Lake. And then, like I said, I've been in Smithers here for about three, just over three years now. And, you know, when we were in Burns Lake, um, I had made the mistake of bringing my wife to Smithers an hour and a half off the road on the (laughs) weekend. (laughs) Yeah, she was upset. Why couldn't you get us posted here? Oh, it's beautiful here. Yeah. It is
0: amazing. So I've done some hunting in the Williams Lake area, and I can imagine (laughs) that there's probably a fair bit of work for a conservation officer to do up there, just based on my
1: observations and what I've seen, that could be um, a pretty busy area. Mm-hmm. It's population 10 to 12,000 there, plus the, there's all the surrounding communities, very big deer hunting uh, population there. Mm. You can, there's moose and elk and there's, there's salmon, there's everything there. It's, mm. it's the posting that I think offers for me the most variety of terrain and, and type of work. It's just, it's an amazing place to work. Mm -hmm. And uh, because it's close to Vancouver and some of the bigger centers, it's a day drive. Um, You know, a a person from Vancouver could be up and hunting that evening. Mm -hmm. So you have a big hunter base and you have a lot of call volume because you have a lot of people. So you're hopping busy in a community like that.
0: So, you know, I, I have some questions out here. I figured it's only right that we go through a few of these ones, some are a little bit interesting. Uh, some I think are really good here, uh, we had one person write in and he wanted to know like, how do you become a conservation officer? How many conservation officers are there out there? What's the process like? Is it pretty competitive? Is it hard to get into? Yeah. What, what does
1: that look like? Um, well, for me, my the way I came to the CO service was a little unique from everybody else. Mm. The generic sort of common path into the services, essentially a, a person has to go to, a you know, there's a few colleges that offer natural resource law enforcement, VIU or Lethbridge, maybe Fleming or some others. And they do a, a, a two-year diploma or a degree in natural resource law enforcement or some sort of a similar field.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then typically uh, you would do a couple years as maybe a seasonal officer somewhere or maybe a park warden or uh invasive species inspector or some something to get some seasonal work mm. and then mm. apply and so it's very common you apply more than once because you may not get through the first time
2: mm.
1: So essentially what happens is we hire once a year um, and I can speak with a little bit of authority on that because I, I had just, I'm just finishing up in July. I did six months as the training sergeant and recruiting sergeant. So, and I was part of the last hiring panel. Mm -hmm. So I got a little bit of exposure on, on how it works, but essentially we hire once a year and I think we're hiring the first, I think it opens up September. The first week of September, we're starting our process again for two weeks period and go into the government website and you'll see the job for the conservation officer and the instructions are there, but basically you're submitting a resume. And then the, the training, recruiting team will vet those and they'll pick whatever number that is that meet the qualifications. And there's no set number. It's just how many people that actually meet the qualifications and they vet them from there. And then you're invited to, uh, uh, to an interview.
0: Okay. Well, what, what kind of qualifications would kind of set a person apart if they're looking at it?
1: Well, uh, this is a standard driver's license. You need your core, you need your firearms license. Um, uh, you need to have the, the medical and all that stuff will come later, but um, your first aid certificate, your WHMIS, and, and then some sort of proof that you uh, are in school or have done schooling or something relevant uh, in the education side, mm. um, if you haven't done like me a natural resource background in it but I have some other credits from university and tied with my military stuff, and articulating that in your app application may, may be enough to get you through to that interview phase mm. and that that's the the way I found my way in but typically it's they're in a pro- they are in a program specifically to become you know, a, a game warden or a fisheries officer or, or something. Mm-hmm. And it may be the first year or two, maybe the same as what the biologists are taking or like, so they're, I think VIU has now an accelerated one-year program where they tie in some other training that you've done or other courses and they tie into a one-year specific. Wow. Um, so we've had, we've had that program, I think last year was the first year they started. But I, I, I can tell you from when I started 10 years ago till now, we're hiring people before they're even graduated. You're hungry for them. We're hungry for them because we're competing with the police, the military, other law enforcement agencies, other game warden agencies, fisheries officers. So we're all competing for the same sort of group of people. And so we're hiring them quicker and they're going to the academy younger and they're being deployed younger, less life experience. Mm. Um, Yeah, so basically once you're at the phase where you're – I think the hardest part is getting to the interview. Okay. For me, that's where I think the challenge is where most people get vetted out. Once you have an interview, now it's yours to lose. Right. I think. And so there are, there may be some homework assigned to you that you may have to present in front of the hiring panel. There may be some written exams done there. There'll probably be some role plays, some direct questions, and it's all graded on by the panel and then you you get a percentage assigned to you and then once all the applicants are through we kind of pick well not pick i guess it's based on their percentage and how high how, how many positions we have we take x amount that are through me at the top whatever percent yeah and offer them a job it, and and yeah. then there's the medical and psychology psych test and there's also uh like uh not a lie detector test but uh digital voice stress thing and background checks a form of a polygraph yeah like a polygraph a background you know it's, it's the same as what a police agency would have it's is the psych assessment one of those multiple choice, hundreds of questions, I those bubbles? So. I remember it was something like 900 questions or something like
0: that. I remember when I was 18 years old and I got hired by an armored car company and that was part of the hiring process and they do a psychological profile and I go through there and I'm like, I want to make sure I do really good. So I'm going to remember yeah. every question and every answer and I'm going to remember uh, variations on it because you, yeah, you're asked the same thing over We're and over again. In different ways, yeah. In different ways. And so I'm like, I got to remember yeah. all of this. So I go through there. I submit my psych exam, it comes back, it says, um, you failed. It's too black and white. They're looking, yeah. they're looking for a level of, of variance inside here. Yeah. And I'm like, no, 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 I, would, I, I answered this thing perfectly. So he says, well, do it again. Yeah. So I do it again, and I go through, and it says, too black and white again, right? It's either you, you don't have that middle ground anyways um they ended up hiring me despite that i <laughs> said okay fair enough maybe you're just a black
1: and white sort of personality yeah. they uh, when i wrote mine it was in vancouver and the, the lady that was administering it said it was after it was all done you're like any questions i'm like yeah i actually have a question like I, one of the questions asked the same sort of thing a couple different ways and it was does your father like flowers or something mm-hmm. like that and i said i can't answer that question and she's like well it's like it was a yes or no true or false thing and i'm like I don't, I've never, don't know my father, never met him. Mm-hmm. So how do I know what kind of flowers? He's like, right. I can't, she will just put one. I said, I can't, I will, I'm answering it falsely then. Mm-hmm. So, so she didn't know quite what to say. <laughs> She's like, well, put this one down.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it's funny. And then f- what sort of attributes would a person have that uh, would kind of set them apart in the, let's say the interview phase?
1: Um, common sense accountability, uh, the ability to triage, uh, flexibility. Mm. And those are all really important traits. And if, I think if you're missing any of those, you're not going to do so well. I don't think you won't, you'll struggle. Well,
0: watching you yesterday and just knowing you, people skills have to be pretty high on the, yeah. on the list there as well, cause you're dealing with all different walks of life yeah. and, um, yeah, what, what would the average day look like for a conservation officer?
1: Well, there is no average day, and that's… That's, that's the appeal. Yeah, that's the <laughs> appeal. And, you know, I tried to… You tried it, to put a plan together to uh, maybe do a patrol of a certain river or uh, patrol a certain area, and uh, quickly get sidelined by a, a call of, of another nature. Maybe you have to assist in a search and rescue or maybe your supervisor doesn't want you in the office for some other reason, or maybe there's a search warrant they need a hand on, or it's just, you just kind of have to be prepared for everything. Mm. And and then having the ability to to realize what's important, what in your list of things that's happening right now, what is the priority? priority? Is it a public safety thing to do with a bear? Is it a poaching thing in progress? Is it the car crash that you've just suddenly come upon and there's people injured? Mm. Is it the financing lunch claim thing that your sergeant's been bugging you about, maybe can wait another day? Mm. You have a court case, maybe you have to prepare for that. Like there's just so many aspects of the job that you can't be prepared. You have to be prepared for everything. Um, and some days it actually works out. Mm-hmm. And one of the, you know, I'm going, I'm getting on the jet boat, and we're going to check anglers. And the sooner you get out of cell phone service, the better. <laughs> <laughs> then the plan can stay on track. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, I think to me, that's one of the appealing parts of the job is the diversity in the job. And and of course, it also depends on where you're posted. And because you know, the lower layman CEOs um, may be dealing with some different things than we're dealing with. And their seasons are going to be different than our seasons. Mm. They're not going to be doing caribou pa- closure patrols in the lower mainland. And that's a, you know, a thing we do here. Or, right. Or They're not checking moose hunters in, in Victoria. Right, right. So. Oh man, you guys got bears out here right now. Yeah, it's busy.
0: Going by the oat field there, I think, what do we count? Like, Seven or eight bears yeah, there. It's yeah. it's lots of bears. I'm, you're probably getting a ton of calls on those right now.
1: Yeah, it's, it is that year that I have never had a year like this with bears and it's just, it's a triaging of what's what's important and what needs to be actioned and what can be managed. So w- one question that came up was about the grizzly bear because there's a moratorium
0: on grizzly bear hunting in BC. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed or heard from other conservation officers that there's increased pressure with grizzly bears? I know some, I know uh, we hear things from uh, Teltan and, and other places anecdotal stories Mm -hmm.
1: have you heard anything on that our call volume with grizzly bears i don't think really has increased however i mean talking from hunters that are doing flying hunts and some of the remote hunting camps are reporting more encounters with grizzly bears yes Mm. so let me just pull up a couple others here um
0: this one says, how do conservation officers view their position? Is it more community police role or focus on enforcement through ticketing? What's uh, what's the um, the balance?
1: Well, I think and a lot of these towns were posted in our smaller towns, like Smithers is only five thousand people or so. Hmm. And th- the locals refer to us as our conservation officer, not the conservation officer. Oh, that's cool. So that's that's an, and so you're integrated into the community. My wife's a teacher; they know her husband is a game warden, mm. um, and you have to, I think, have to be part of your job is volu- volunteering. You know, I help out with some other things around town, and and just integrating into the community and showing that you're part of it, even though you may not have been born here or anything like that, that you're really trying to fit in mm. and just be available. And not that you treat the locals any different from someone that's passing through, but you know, you still gotta have a, a firm hand when you need to with the locals, just like anybody else. And there's no special treatment, but at the same time, realizing you still gotta live in that community. It's a, it's a tough balance. Well, yeah. And you've got a difficult balance here too, cause your, your background
0: Ojibwe, uh, First Nations community here in the Smithers area, I, I, how is, how does that work? How do you, how do you balance that? Cause there's, there was a number of questions that came up about First Nations hunting and what the enforcement looked like. And it's, that's such a complex question cause there's so many different, uh, bands throughout, um, throughout British Columbia yeah. that, uh. Uh, but they all get that, that blanket First Nations uh, uh, label put on them.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, and again, I'm a unique, there's a couple First Nations CEOs in our outfit. And at times I think I get ridden a little harder by the First Nations because I'm First Nations and in an enforcement role. Mm. And they look, sometimes they look at me as a traitor, mm. hurting my own people. And on the other side, they're really pa- happy and proud to see me in the job I am as First Nations and so I get a bit of both mm. um, but I also can relate to a lot of the encounters we have with First Nations and because I've I've been there I get it I grew up in that environment I understand and I know and I'm, I'm, I'm well versed in what the title rights are and, and traditional territories and how it all the enforcement rolls out and how that works and and when I'm trying to explain that to some of the First Nations they Buy into it a little bit more because I'm First Nations and they right. can see it from my end. So I, I am, I'm I'm i able to step with one foot on either side of the fence in that world. Mm. And you know how we have a, a little in BC, we have a little different enforcement uh, way of doing business with compared to say Alberta or Saskatchewan, and right. we're very much. Uh, First Nations can harvest in their traditional territory and and kind of if you, you are a status from say Saskatoon or something and you're here out of season and you just shoot a moose mm. and you still have a status card, well, we treat you no different than anybody else shooting a moose out of season. Mm. You, ha- you have to be uh, from that First Nation in that traditional territory um, so that that there's a little difference there with BC. We don't have all the big treaties like the prairies do. Mm-hmm. We have a small part of Treaty 8 in the north. Yep. Um, but other than that, it we don't in the rest of the province. Uniquely, we do have memorandums of understanding with some of the bands. Um, so Niska or Gittanyal have imp- implemented with cooperation from us, and we've drafted an enforceable memorandum of, of uh, for instance, m- There's, you can't shoot a cow moose Mm. Um, and they'll have a draw for bull moose on their band in their traditional territory and they'll share the list with us of who in their band is allowed to harvest a bull moose within these dates. Anybody outside of that, we're free to prosecute just like anybody else. Holy crow. And they've, and this is something they voluntarily came up with? In conjunction with us. Yeah. And th- there's also in Williams Lake area and some, a few other places around the province, we have a memorandum like Williams Lake band. Uh, you can't shoot a moose out of season or, nice. um, and so, so depending on the band, it depends on a little how, um, what sort of restrictions they want to place. Mm. Um, but we have a first nations cell in our agency and, and they sort of spearhead that effort. Uh, we do guardian training to help mm-hmm. some of the local First Nations help uh, with it being our eyes and ears, and maybe if they're first on scene collecting, preserving the scene, or maybe asking some of the questions that we need to be asked. Or So we have a – I think we're not there yet, but we still need to develop that relationship, and it's getting better. It's certainly better than when I joined, and it can, it can only get better. No kidding. Well, it's nice when everyone kind of recognizes – the need to be able to protect the resources that we have, right? Yeah. I mean, we have to work together. There's no way around it. It's, mm-hmm. We're not going to get anywhere if we're divided and uh, we're stronger together. And, and that's, I think, how we need to move forward. Uh, another question that came up was, what
0: are some of the most typical uh, things that you find as a conservation officer, both on the, uh, the fishing side, as well as on the hunting side? Like what are the common infractions that people make
1: either knowingly or unknowingly? Okay, well, fishing. I mean, we're in Skina, and we have you know the Balkley and the Maurice and and the Kispiox and these are some of the the most uh, well producing salmon and steelhead fishing rivers and anywhere. It's mm-hmm. amazing. People fly from all over the world to, mm-hmm. to to fish here, and the locals enjoy it too. Mm-hmm. Um, in any stream in BC or river, you cannot have a barbed hook, mm-hmm. and that's one of the most uh, common violations. Um, the other part to that is people just not doing their their homework before getting on a piece of piece of river, and they may not understand the regulations on that particular piece of water, and and just thinking it's the same as a lake, and maybe not realize that you can't keep a fish under thirty centimeters or more than say two over fifty centimeters. Mm. Or maybe there's no retention of a particular species. Mm-hmm. So those are sort of the common ones that we see. And, and it can get, it can be complicated when you're fishing for salmon in freshwater, because you're referring to DFO's website of what you can retain and where, mm-hmm. and then you got to overlay the BC regulations on top of that. And I get it's confusing. And if, I mean, for us, it's confusing. There's, we don't write those regulations. We have maybe a little input. And then whatever gets pumped out in the end, we got to interpret that. Right. And we hope the public interprets that too. So I know for me personally, because there's there's a lot to remember, I don't have a great memory. I have to, every time I get on a new piece of water or even an old piece of water, mm. I refresh my memory go look at the regulations so I know what I'm talking about. I know what I'm re- looking for. And it, it, it can all fold into one if you don't really focus on... Um, what particular body of water you're on. And, and so to expect the public to do that, too, you got to have kid gloves on at, at times. And, mm. you know, there's something to be said for someone that doesn't do any due diligence or homework and just goes out. And so, you know, there's a time and place. And then there's, you know, maybe someone that's a new Canadian that's trying to integrate and starting, they got a license and they just maybe not understanding how it all works. And that's where you got to have that discretion. What about on the hunting side? What are some of the more common things you see? Uh, hunting out of your MU when you enter draw is like, Mm. there's that game, there's, you know, a loaded firearm in your vehicle. It's a safety consideration. Yeah. You know, consuming alcohol while you're operating a vehicle or operating a firearm is another one or impairment, you know, through marijuana or other substances. Mm. Those, some more, those are more of the serious ones. Um. you know, uh, evidence of sex attached, or maybe the transport regulations on when you're bringing an animal to and from. Um, you know, maybe not having evidence of sex attached, or a chunk of hide, or mm. maybe they didn't take out all the meat, or maybe they've separated and someone they've sent someone home with half the meat, and they didn't give them the proper documentation to take. So if they go through a game check and they got half a moose with them, and they can't explain it, mm-hmm. things can get hairy, right? Yes. So, so there, you know, just some. Those are the, some of the more common ones, and um, but you know, a lot of that can be resolved by looking at the regulations. And if it, if, if you're having trouble understanding them, which I, I get again because it can be confusing, is contacting us through the website. You, you can email, and that you want to talk to CEO in Smithers area or whatever, and that message gets down to us, and we the phone number is provided. We'll call. We'll try to call them back and try to. Give some guidance and maybe answer some questions. And I would much rather prefer that than having to deal with you in an enforcement role because you had messed up somewhere. And now there's something, you know, I mean, it could be serious, it could be just a ticket. You know. I'm surprised at how many people don't realize that they can just
0: contact the CEO and ask their questions. Yeah. I mean, what a valuable resource it is, and we've we've used it on a number of occasions in the past. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there's some areas that it can be a little bit tricky, and it's uh, it can be interpreted maybe in a few different ways. So you want to know the way that it's being interpreted from a from a legal standpoint. Yeah, and I if I can get that in writing, even better, because if I run into somebody else, whether it's a CEO or Um, anyone else in an enforcement capacity and they're, if, if it's confusing for me, it might be confusing for them. So having that, that little piece of document that you've done your due diligence and it provides clear outlines.
1: Yeah. And you know, at the same time you're talking to somebody that's coming up and you've provided them some information, they're really help. they're really, um, glad that you talked to them and they're help. you know, and so next thing you know, they're phoning in with a tip for you. Mm -hmm. And so you've just gained, you know, an extra set of eyes out there. Mm-hmm. There's only 148 of us, and in my region, there's four of us to patrol 177 square kilometers. It's the size of Greece, mm-hmm. and an extra set of eyes goes a long way. Well, that's one of the questions: was what can we do to help? Was, <laughs> it
0: was the uh, the question what what can hunters and anglers out there do to help the COs? Because you always hear people griping when they see someone doing something that's offside and that's frustrating because you're doing, you're playing by the rules, you're doing things right and you look to your side and see someone doing it offside. What
1: can they do? Yeah, I mean just collecting, first off don't intervene with directly with the person because that could lead to some, you know, get yourself in trouble. Mm. Yeah, and people can be, you never know what's going to happen. Right. But, you know, understanding that you have understanding what the regulations are, and if you know that there's there there there's something that's not right there, or maybe we should know about it. You know, a license plate, a location, direction of travel, phone right away if you can. Mm. You know, finding out the next day after the person is long gone doesn't help. Mm-hmm. And you know, if obviously you if you're in cell phone service and you call the rap line. Um, it's a violation in progress. We're going to try to attend a violation in progress. If, mm-hmm. if we're able to go, we're going to go. Um, but you know those details. He's you know what it, what kind of truck it is with the license plate. It's headed this way. He's wearing this. This is what I observed. All that's going to become very helpful for us um, if we can if we're able to catch up with the person and have a chat with them. Have you been able to use
0: third party video or photos provided by the public to um, to actually do enforcement? For sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And there's other, other, um, technology that we're, you know, if we're able to use like, just like any other police agency, we can, we can get that information or video footage or whatever. Mm. But uh, honestly, the best information we get is the the one that's closest time to the violation and from firsthand accountant. And then we may be asking you to provide a statement to help us with our, our case. Should it go, uh, uh, in an enforcement role, enforcement action. Mm. That was one of the interesting things that
0: uh, appeals to me. If I were to be a CO, is the fact that if you're building a case, you see that case all the way through from start to finish.
1: Yeah, that's one of the cool things about our job. Is as a field officer, uh, you're you're starting the file and you're ending the file, and that includes gathering the evidence, taking statements, maybe doing firearms, sending it off for firearms forensics or DNA. Photographs, logging the evidence, doing your report to Crown, talking with Crown, going to court, submitting evidence, doing, uh, working with your your Crown adjudicator, your Crown lawyer, uh, sentencing, and follow up, and then maybe even uh, license action on the individual. Mm. So, forfeiture of items, all of that. I mean, you're you're at start to finish where we don't have. We have a major investigations, uh, general investigations unit in our outfit that ha- handles some bigger sort of uh, big files. But mm. for the average CO, you you are the handler for that file from start to finish. Mm. You don't have any anybody to hand it off to. Like you kind of you do it all. And, sure. and it's really cool because I was talking to somebody about um, a moose that was. Uh, shot and left and uh, it was in my Burns like days and it was shot on private property and the person that reported it got a plate and a direction and he, when he was challenged by the homeowner he just left the animal and took off. Mm. So shot and left moose is you know it's a it's a fairly big deal. Yeah. But you know there's some clues there. there you got a license plate you can get a person you know, maybe yeah. some DNA collection maybe a rifle casing um maybe dna if he had maybe you can do other things and it's basically a murder investigation except the victims are moose mm. and they're no different and you're handling that from start to finish you're not handing it off to the um the suicide or the 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 group of the officers that handles homicides homicides homicide right? yeah, yeah you are it from a to b a to c and See, that'd be pretty cool.
0: That's uh, because the success or failure of that entire thing will depend on you and there's going to be a higher motivation for you to make sure that your, your dot and eyes, is crossing T's. Yeah, and
1: it's a sense of pride in your file to, yeah. to get things done right and, and uh, you, there's a lot to learn in there. It takes, you, you don't learn that off the bat. You take some experience and some, you know, doing things right and wrong to figure it out and some guidance from more experienced people and, uh, but it's rewarding at the end when you know, you, you got a file that needs, needs some, uh, outcome and it gets it. So, so you have a, let's say shot and left animal. Um, you go there,
0: get, do all the forensic work, you pull out bullets, you look for casings, DNA, all, all the, all the CSI type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens to the meat after?
1: Well. <laughs> We do keep a chunk of meat for DNA and whatnot, but mo- mostly, if we are able to, we'll we'll um, we'll give the meat to the local First Nations, or we we'll have we have a meat list for for others that want would like to be on it, and you know we we'll often put down animals on the side of the highway that are injured. Mm. We try not to waste that. If we seize fish, it, it, lots of people, you know, it's you know, you see a fish and you're like, oh, you're going to be eating that tonight. You know, there's, it's evidence and it's all documented. It's, (laughs) I don't know where these stories come from, but there's so much oversight from supervision, layers of supervision that you, it's impossible to do that. And you have, you're, you're giving people, you know, here's a fish and you're documenting that. Here's a paper to sign. I got to put it in my notebook. You may have to take photos. There's so many layers that you, there's impossible. Mm. Um, but yeah, we, that meat gets, it, it get, does not get wasted.
2: I mm.
0: know yeah, one of the questions that came up, there's a, have you ever heard of a website called Fishing with Rod? No. Okay. There's a, I guess the guy's name is Rod and he's got a, and he I like, broke this, uh, story or someone through his website did it. There's a bunch of fish that were just dumped on mm-hmm. the, uh, in the side of the bushes and kind of going bad. And I guess the, uh. The speculation was that somebody was catching them or some people were catching them and they're selling them and when they got too bad to sell, they just kind of dumped them all over the side. What, what do COs do in a, in a situation like
1: that? What can be done? Well, I mean, if it's an area where it's causing an attractant for dangerous wildlife for wolves and bears and coyotes and things like that, that's an issue and right. that's something we can deal with. Mm. There's more responsible ways to to just to get rid of your fish mm. um and you know there's there's you could take it to the dump sure uh, a lot of the dumps are free sure. out here. i yeah. mean that's a pretty viable option there's <laughs> there's other places that it can be brought that you you know may not attract the the attention from us or or bringing in wildlife uh which could you know be be harmful so one question
0: we had was uh What's the correct way to respond if you're approached by a conservation officer and you're out hunting or you're out fishing? What's the what's the best thing a person can do?
1: Well, it depends on you know. There's lots of depends. Like, so sure. it could be in a vehicle or in a quad or walking or whatever. But basically, our job is to just ensure that the compliance part of it is being met and and the interaction is safe for mm. for you and me. So, if you have a firearm with you and you're out. Uh, On foot, let's say, you know, unloading the firearm is, I'm going to ask you to unload it just because not having a loaded firearm while we're face-to-face is important for me. It's beneficial, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, In a vehicle, you know, just being respectful and not making any sudden movements towards your gun. You know, I may ask you if I can uh, inspect your gun to make sure it's unloaded because for me, unloading, having a, dealing with the firearm first is my priority. Mm. After that, we can deal with everything else. But, um, you know, the conservation officer should be the one introducing him or herself as, hey, I'm a conservation officer. I'm just doing whatever check they're doing. Mm. A little bit of intro. Maybe it might be a bit of small talk. Have you seen any game? Anybody else out? And then, you know, just being open and honest about what's going on and what you're doing and why they're, why they're there to inspect your, so your, your line or your firearm or whatever you're doing. That
0: was one of the interesting ones because conservation officers have, uh, wide responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Very often the calls that they're going to are person with a firearm calls, Mm -hmm. Not not necessarily a malicious bad guy type firearm call, but I mean, you're, you're trained on several different platforms of firearms. You're encountering firearms on a regular basis. Um, you have a very wide platform of, um, a discretionary power and in fact some of them will exceed what a police officer has mm-hmm. and people are saying oh you can't come into my vehicle you can't search my vehicle you need a warrant well not from a conservation officer perspective no.
1: yeah that's true it we have such a wide berth of responsibilities and to understand and know all that is you gotta it takes some time to be proficient in all that so mm. but yes uh a CEO will inspect more firearms in one season than a typical RCMP member will do in his whole career, mm. his or her whole career, mm. you know, dozens and dozens and dozens, and sometimes dozens and dozens a day, depending mm. on how busy you are. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, in because of the nature of our work and we're mostly in, in the bush a couple hours from nowhere, um, we are packed full of different authorities, um, so a lot of people will challenge us on, you can't do that, you're a game warden. So, you know, for instance, uh, I was on the gang ranch checking deer hunters and I asked to, uh, I did a stop on a fellow and I wanted to check his rifle before we got into the hunting of the deer, check and whatnot. And he said, well, you can't touch that firearm. It's a federal thing and you're just provincial. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, there's a whole... <laughs> There's a whole a bunch of things in there that I think you watched too many episodes of Matlock. And, mm. But uh, COs are given their authority under the Environmental Management Act uh, and you're granted a conservation order there. But in addition to that, uh, the province of BC is, has uh, appointed us special provincial constables in the province of BC with unrestricted uh, powers to enforce all laws and acts in BCs. Mm. So we have the same authorities as a mountain in BC as a provincial constable. So we could write you a texting while driving or a speeding ticket, or, and it has happened, but it's not really what we're there for. Mm-hmm. But we have the authority to deal with anything in the province. On top of, because we're a peace officer, we're a provincial constable, criminal code and all that, all, we can do all of that stuff. We're also appointed federal fisheries officers, uh, same as DFO, to deal right. with all the federal fisheries stuff. We're appointed Canadian wildlife officers. We have dual appointments in the Yukon and Alberta. So we're considered game wardens in those two territories as well. So we're packed full of authorities and we do have uh, some different authorities in the police because of the Wildlife Act to search without warrant vehicles, boats, any other conveyance or a camp. Mm. And um, I'll ask you, if I can go into your vehicle, if you've been hunting or fishing or something I want to look at in there as a courtesy Mm -hmm. and you may tell me no, or you need a warrant, then I'm just, I want to see where you're going to go with it. Mm -hmm. But I, I really don't need your permission, but I often will ask because it's the polite thing to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's one thing, you know,
0: dealing with, dealing with anyone really be respectful. Yeah, for sure. That, that can change the outcome because you have such discretionary power powers from giving a warning to giving a fine to seizing equipment to going to jail to, and sometimes people can just be having a bad day and they can walk out with a warning and sometimes they are having a bad day and they just make their day worse.
1: Yeah. And you know, you, you can't talk yourself out of being arrested, but you can talk yourself into being arrested. (laughs) I like that. Yeah. And you know, we have Police, we have the cages in our trucks, like the we call it the prisoner caged. Mm-hmm. We have those in our trucks for a reason. Mm-hmm. We have handcuffs for a reason. Mm-hmm. It's not often that we're arresting people, um, but if we're in the back country and you know we um, we come across something, and because we're uh, in the back country, we we may get people that are trying to avoid the city centers and using the back country. Mm. And if we run your name through our dispatch and maybe a warrant for your arrest or there may be some other thing that is going on and, you know, you get arrested and you get brought to the police station. And in the Wildlife Act, there, there's provisions for that in the Fisheries Act. And we rarely, rarely arrest people for a barbed hook. That does not happen. Although right. it's possible. <laughs> it just, it doesn't work like that. I mean, yeah. that's not what we do. But, um, you know, there's... Some instances where for sure, um, under the wildlife act that we will put handcuffs on you and seize your truck and your boat and all that other stuff. And mm-hmm. it, I mean, really, it's gotta be a, something serious enough for that, but for the most part, depending on the interaction or what the nature of what has happened, it may result in a warning, may result in a couple of tickets it may result having to go to court and let a judge decide. Mm-hmm. So I did a float hunt
0: with a couple of friends at a older commercial whitewater raft that I purchased in my my twenties because I almost drowned on the goofy little World War two inflatable that I was using before that that I bought at a gun show. And uh, another buddy had a rowing frame for it, and we took it down the Fraser River for about a hundred kilometers, and we're just looking at the maps. And one area says whirlpools, another area says rapids, and we had we didn't really do much of a recce hunt on it. And it was, mm-hmm. uh, try to get some local knowledge to see if, the, what it would look like. But what I really thought would have been beneficial is if I could have taken a drone and flown sections where it's going to look a little trickier and just make sure it was safe to go. But I said, no,
1: not bringing a drone on this hunt. Was that the right call? That's a very good call. Okay. That could have been a bad day for you. Yeah. So, and there's using drone while you're hunting. Mm. That. There is no ticket for that. You just go right to court. Mm. If you have a drone with you on a hunting expedition, that is a ticket or court, depending on, mm. and you could, you could lose that drone. I'd, I'd probably seize it from you mm-hmm. until we figure it out. Um, the, the the fair chase part of that with the drone, uh, it's a, it's a new thing. The drones, every uh, it's so accessible now and. Everybody seems to have one, and you want to bring your kids with you on a hunt, and they want to bring their drone. Leave the drone at home. Mm-hmm. What about ID? People needing ID with their
0: fishing license, ID with Ooh. their with their tags. Is that something you find a lot of people uh, gap on?
1: Not. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been the last five years where that's been a requirement mm. um, as part of the the new updated system for fish and wildlife ID, the FID system. Mm. And uh, as you know, if you've been encountered a CO in the last couple of years, he he or she would have asked you for ID and they ha- we have an app on our phone that we can use in and out of cell phone service that brings out some basic data about what your residency is, what kind of tags you have, what your draw is, etc. Mm. And eventually the, the goal is to migrate the fishing license into that as well. I'm not sure how they're going to figure out with the documenting Chinook and Steelhead with writing it on the paper. but Right. So... Uh, I don't know how that's going to work, but in the meantime, um, you produce your ID and we can pull up all your data. Phishing as well. No different. It's, it's an authorization. You have to have your ID for phishing
2: mm.
1: and, um, it's to, it's to prepare to go to that paperless side, mm. but either way, it's, it's a regulated activity. You need a piece of ID with you to prove who you are, um, in the past, it you know, it's just too easy to go print off your fishing license and borrow your friends. And... Right, right. So, yeah, I have the residency game as well. And it can be quite pricey to buy a non-resident license. And if you're from Ontario and your brother has a house here, it's too easy. Yeah, I could see that. Let's see what other questions we have. Um,
0: one person was asking about uh, Métis. And there's a... He says, is their understanding that Métis have federal migratory bird rights, but
1: not provincial hunting rights. Is that correct? No, not in, not in BC. Métis, um, there's no recognition or special privilege for hunting for that. Mm. So make sure that they have
0: all of their correct licenses. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting one. I don't even know if it's something that you can comment on, but, um. how can hunters provide more support on a political level
1: to conservation officers? Oh, wow! <laughs> <laughs> That's a one for off topic offline, yeah. but uh, it's a good question and um, you know, we're, what I can say is, you know, we're, our, our numbers are less than 150 and that those haven't increased in, in a while and our, our workload has increased, our authorities of what we're, we're enforcing, uh, different, more mandates, more hunting uh, population. The c- cities are growing, the call volume's growing. And as a field officer, and, and I can speak for my fellow field officers, we're, you know, it's busy and I think we need some help. Mm-hmm. Okay, enough said. What are some of the most
0: interesting files that either you or your colleagues have had to deal with? Oh, wow.
1: Um, some of them are still ongoing So I can't speak to them Because they're still sure. Before the courts But um, I've been <laughs> I think some of the, the Sort of funny ones Are like the problem wildlife ones Where you're interacting With with critters And it's kind of the moments You hope nobody's watching Sort of thing <laughs> Yeah <laughs> And uh, Oh geez I had one where I'm just remembering this So like I was in Burns Lake, and and you're quite close with the RCMP members because you're often backing each other up, and and so you have each other's cell phone numbers and whatnot. So mm-hmm. I get a call, at like two thirty three in the morning, from one of the Mounties on duty in Burns Lake, and he has uh, a tell in his voice that he's amped up, and <clears throat> he said, "Ron, there's a grizzly bear uh, trying to break into this lady's house, and we're on our way." and I'm like, "Okay, I'm getting dressed." And it was an address kind of halfway to between me and where they were, so mm. right. right on the highway, Highway 16. So I I race down there and I pull into the, the the yard and the Mounties are waving their arms at me. Oh no no it's okay sort of sort of just we can step it down a little bit. Okay, okay. I, I jump out of the truck and I'm like what's going on? And it's like oh it's not it's not a grizzly bear it's. She said she saw a grizzly bear the other day and hurled in Iraq and assumed, but it, it's not, it's a, it's a, it's a young calf moose. This is like last, early June, like first or second day of June. <clears throat> and mama's on the other side of the fence and baby's on this side and mama's freaking out cause baby can't figure out how to get through mm. the fence. And so I'm like, okay, well, all we got to do is take the calf and put her on the other side of the fence and problem solved. Sounds easy. Yes, it does. <laughs> so I walk up to the to the two mounties, and I'm like, "Your job is to keep her from stomping me." Hmm. I'm not afraid of the Taliban. I'm not afraid of Al Qaeda. You know, who I'm afraid of cow moose because <laughs> <laughs> they're dangerous. Oh yeah. So uh, I go over to this little guy, and he's a couple days old. It's just tiny. It's all wobbly, and and I give it a little poke with my foot to try to get the maybe shoe out. -hmm. Fence fenced area, give it a poke, give it a poke, and it doesn't move. Third third time I give it a poke, it stands up on all fours and lets out this little moose calf Eh, Mm -hmm. and puts its heads down and charges towards me. (laughs) It headbutts me right in the the nuts. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah,
1: Yeah. so I get bent over. I fall. I'm kind of bent over, and then all I feel is.
2: Oh, come on.
1: It's hoofing me on my body armor. Oh, come on. And I look over at the two cops and they're pointing and laughing. "Ah," (laughs) As the little guy runs off into the corner of the yard and I'm bent over and I say, I just need a minute. I just need, he got me. He really got me. And so they just are laughing their guts out. The homeowner is standing on her, on the porch and kind of like, what, what is going on here? So I'm, the expert right I mm. show up and I'm I'm out of commission I mean a mind. few minutes <clears throat> so I can hear mama on the other side of the fence still and their cops are trying to get themselves together and so I'm like okay I gotta go and find this guy and chew him out of here now so mm. I I walk over I get myself and I walk kind of start walking and I find this like barbecue grate kind of thing on the ground mm. and I pick it up and I put it over my bits <laughs> <for> a little <laughs> bit of protection now because he's dangerous you're learning <laughs> hit fool me once right yeah so uh I start walking over towards him and I get close to him and I'm sort of gesturing him with this fence to try to get him to run and he gets it he starts running as gangly as he can towards the front fence which is perfect he's going he's going I'm watching and and there's two police cars there their headlights on sort of right where he's running Mm -hmm. and he's running for them he's running for them and then I hear that Bang. Oh, come on. Man. It hits his head on the bull bar of the police car. Ding. And it falls over and it's ah. shaking and its yeah. legs are vibrating. And then I hear the homer, oh my God, oh my God. And I'm like, oh crap. Mm. So I run over and I pick this little guy up and he's out. He mm. knocked himself out. Mm. I pick him up, and this is my chance to grab him and take him out of the... So I take him, and I run him out to the gate quickly before mama comes, and I put him down, and I run back in and close the gate. And I'm still hurting from oh, yeah. my previous injury. <laughs> and I'm watching the little guy, and and he's starting to come to, and he's mama comes around, and she's standing basically over top of him and takes a couple of minutes, and baby stands up and shakes his head, and <laughs> they run off into the woods. Um. <laughs> so... Yeah, and then I get home at like probably like four in the morning or something, and get back in the bed. And my wife's like, "How'd it go?" I'm like, "I don't want to talk." About it. <laughs> uh, if only there's a camera on that at the time, eh? Yeah, like you know, there's <laughs> there was witnesses on that one, and but you know, things like that. That's funny. Um,
0: here's a question: that like people uh, did This is what deterrence of conservation officers see as effective against illegal bear and unlicensed harvesting of wildlife. Not, not really the most well put together sentence, but, uh, um, and and is that a big thing? I mean, we, we always hear about illegal bear harvest and, uh, is that?
1: Yeah, it's not as common as it used to. I mean, when the grizzly bear hunt was on, you know, we probably saw more of that, but Mm. it's illegal to bait bears uh, in BC, um, you know, so it could create them, it could create us, people will bait deer and then the bear also like the food that the deer are eating, corn or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's, there's that, mm. but, um, it's not a common, at least up here, it's not a common, I mean, so many bears, I mean, you don't have to drive very far to bump into one. No, you don't. The, the need to bait them is, I don't, find is there.
2: mm
0: so, here's a couple of interesting ones. I can probably answer a few of these ones, but we'll ask them anyways. Uh, do you guys really get MP5s, or is that a myth? Or is that <laughs> a fishing
1: game? Or is that the fishing game dudes? <laughs> I've never handled an MP5, whether in the Army or the CO service. No, yeah. that's uh, I don't know. That's probably a US Game Warden show or something. So, what are you guys handling? Um, we carry automatic pistol Glocks uh, yeah. as a service pistol. We have, uh, 22s, uh, shotguns, uh, a 308 patrol rifle, and we carry tranquilizer, uh, guns.
0: So Glock 22 or 22 caliber? It's a Glock 22, 40 cal. Right. Okay. I didn't know when he said 22s after Sorry, that. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Um, I said, that's interesting. 22s, what do you, what are you using the 22s for? Uh, to-
1: Small game like coyotes or, you know, uh, it, it's it's a it's a easier caliber for smaller mammals and just gives you more options. There's smaller tools in the toolbox. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's one of the cool things about our agency. And I've had the opportunity to work with other agencies. And when you go through recruit training, you go through with other uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Yukon, and uh, um, Alberta. Yeah. So there's different agencies and you get to see what they're used for equipment, what kind of, how they're kitted out. Um, and so you get to, oh, that's good, I like that, or I don't like that. And so we, I think BC's set up quite well with their equipment and um, not a lot of complaints with the gear we have. I mean, you guys got some
2: good gear. Some,
1: some great gear. And I'm on the uniform committee, so we're always looking for new and better equipment mm. that's lighter, that's more effective, that's easier to use. We use a lot of technical gear, uh, thermal imagers, you know, uh, metal detectors, drones, mm. um, and then some really just old fashioned shovels and axes and hand yeah. saws and winches and they work and yeah, I mean, there's a wide breadth of, of, um, things you got to be proficient at and, and nowadays, like one of those things you got to be proficient at is like a computer yeah <laughs> and typing.
0: Yeah, totally. Cell
1: yeah. phones and iPads and all of that stuff.
0: That's good for the younger generation. They got yeah. that one down. Um, how often do you find yourself having to, um, uh, you're, out of town and maybe you have to bivvy up somewhere. Are you, does that happen often? You're getting broken down, stuck.
1: In the, in my area and in, in this, this, the region where we are, we are in, because we're, we cover such vast, uh, vast areas, like my office covers from Houston to Stewart, yeah. Stewart on the Alaska border. That's a pretty good Yeah. Area. So it's a four and a half hour, five hour drive from Smithers. If I'm in Houston and I get a call to be in Stewart, that's five and a half, six hour drive. Mm. And that's before you deal with whatever you have to deal with, Mm -hmm. then you deal with that and you might as well just spend the night there. Mm -hmm. Um, or if say, if it's full, like this time of year with tourists, there's nowhere to sleep, maybe you can sleep at one of the Mounties houses or at the detachment, Mm -hmm. maybe you sleep in your tent that night, you Mm -hmm. know, we just, our truck are up here, our trucks are equipped to kind of spend the night somewhere. You know if something happens at the bush out in the bush and you have to head out there at 11 o'clock and it may be till five in the morning till you're done maybe it's a grizzly bear mauling or maybe it's an investigation that needs attention and you just you just have to be prepared to be there mm. whether it be minus 30 or plus 35 like you have to have all your gear ready to go all the time and you know you're on patrol in your truck and you have something in mind to go do, and mm-hmm. you may be pulled away from doing that or come across something and you just have to be able to switch gears and, and deal with it.
0: So here's something you'd probably know. Um, you got to work with your hands a heck of a lot as a
1: CO. Mm-hmm. Minus 30, what are you using to keep your mitts warm? Oh geez. <laughs> well, obviously try to wear gloves as much as you can and then stick in your arms under your hand, under yeah. your armpits. But I've, I've jammed my hands and guts of moose. <laughs> <laughs> to keep them warm, you know, I thought about doing the, the Star Wars thing and uh, climb into one. Right, right. <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, you, you know, I, I've seen them overnight come back the next morning to that same carcass and it's still warm inside. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, uh, well, that's a good lesson for hunters. Yeah, f- get, get take the guts out. Right yes,
0: <laughs> absolutely. Um, I don't know how to answer this one. I don't think you will either, but uh which government agency is starting all these fires? Oh God! <laughs> have you uh, have you seen the uh, the conspiracy stuff about uh, conductive en- energy weapons? No. Oh, okay. Apparently, the color blue. That's color blue. Uh, well, we used to have blue uniforms, but they're black now. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, they say color bluey. If you look at uh, some of these places where there are these fires and there's like blue umbrellas are still up or blue cars are there, and apparently Oprah's painting her house blue, like all these. It's on the 66.6 hertz spectrum. So if you have blue, there's no fires? Yeah, the conductive energy weapon will uh, bypass your... uh, Oh, okay. Well, that's. uh, I've been unlucky then. (laughs) Yeah. Um, How lenient will they be with someone who accidentally breaks the rules? Will it be a rough time?
1: Accidentally breaks the rules. So is that someone that has done something and reports it or is that we check somebody and re- they realize that they've done something wrong and we sort of educate them in, on the spot that this is an infraction. Good distinction. Let's say somebody reports, self-reports. Okay. So there's a common one is, uh, say, a four-point mule deer season. Mm. Someone shoots a three-point. Mm. Self-reports. Immediately does what they're supposed to. They're call Co take the guts out so you're not wasting the animal because it's definitely not going to be able to keep it. Mm-hmm. Um, we f- we will attend and take a statement and we'll base that on uh, due diligence of the hunter. So how long did that guy stare at that animal? Did he shoot right away as soon as he saw horns? Or did he mm-hmm. spend some time and do his homework? Maybe he shot at a four point and hit the three point. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it passed through an animal. Um uh, Maybe he hasn't had a whole lot of hunting deer experience or maybe he's a seasoned hunter and still was a little too eager on the trigger. Mm. All of these things play into our discretion. And that's, we don't have a ticket quota. Mm. People ask, What's your qu-? we don't have that. There is no ticket quota. Nobody's ever told me you will write this many tickets.
2: Mm.
1: There'd probably be some questions if you write none. Sure, you can that. Yeah. But we don't have a ticket quota. So we'll base all of that on, circumstances, uh, what occurred. And then, you know, it, it could be a warning. It could be a violation ticket that, that animal is going to be seized. Uh, your, your tag is still going to be punched, mm. but you know, if you don't report it and we somehow get wind of it and, and it's going to be a very different outcome than if you self-report. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah.
0: If you could change any law or deterrent, what would you do to lower poaching
1: incidents? Lower po- I think more education to the hunting, pop- hunting and fishing population. Um, we, there's not a lot of great references for hunters online or, you know, there's the core course and there's talking to other people. That's a start. Um, mm-hmm. uh, calling a seal, getting more information, maybe joining a forum maybe joining a hunting group or a game club, that's a start. But I think the government could do better in terms of helping educate hunters. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh,
1: so there's courses that you have to take to go and hunt, Mm -hmm. but anybody can just go online and buy a fishing license. I know. And then you're just hope for the best and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And uh, fishing is very highly regulated and depending on the body of water you're on and the type of species you're, you're targeting. There's a lot there mm-hmm. and, f- and to, you know, maybe a little bit of training or some more education on the fishing side might, you know, announce ounce of prevention sort of thing. Yeah, I think that'd be good. Yeah. I mean, it's called a fish and wildlife ID. Yeah. That kind of makes sense. So I don't know if there's some appetite to you know, integrate some, have a separate fishing or maybe integrate that into the hunting or I- you know. Honestly, I think having a, uh,
0: just basic, because like your hunting course, your core course teaches you how to be safe, teaches you how to be legal. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the big things. It doesn't teach you how to hunt. Yeah. Um, I mean, people can read the synopsis and try and extrapolate, but there, there's so much to hunting all the different types of species out there.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, and you know, there's identification in, in the core about yep. animals. So fish, salmon especially, people can get that confused. You I know, just, you yeah. keep a coho or... Maybe there's no chinook retention, and they're like, "Oh, it's not a chinook; it's a sockeye," and they get confused. I know. And you know, the photographs aren't so great. And
0: well, you look at the photographs, and then you look at another set of photographs, and they've been taken at different stages of the spawning cycle, yeah. and and one looks like the other, and the, the, yeah. the things you're looking for on one now show up on another one, and it, it can be unless you're out there and you've you've done it a bit and you get to know these critters and the
1: fish, yeah. Like when you kill a steelhead because you think it's a, something different. Whoops! Yeah, that's that's not, that's a bad day for you. Yeah, it's not a good day. What do you do if you find somebody with a
0: steelhead? That's you know they're they're losing the meat for sure.
1: Yeah, there's there's some it it can it definitely is a is a serious offense because of the there is no retention of steelhead here. Can First Nation keep steelhead? Yeah. On, on their yeah. On their land. Traditional territory. Traditional yeah. territory. Okay, For sure. Does, does that happen? It does happen, but they also recognize that the species is not doing as well as it should, and yeah. And so, I mean, they're working with us a lot to educate their own members on on um, what should be harvested and what shouldn't. Mm. I mean, they 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 do have a big uh, uh, sockeye fishery here that members can get sockeye from mm. through the DFO facility in the cooperation with. With uh, the different bands here, they so there's enough salmon to go around mm-hmm. for the band here. So,
0: okay. Is there anything that we should be talking about? You think that we haven't covered so far?
1: Um. Well, I'd like to maybe talk a little bit about the process for a conservation officer and their training, like what they are, what the training's like and what they're, what they have to go through to get to the point where you're now seeing this officer in the middle of nowhere talking to you. There's a lot of training and checks and balances that that person has to go through to get to that point. Totally. Very different from how it was 20 years ago. Yeah. It's very regimented now and it's, 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 uh, it's different from you know, some of these guys that have been around a long time you used to talk, talk to them about what their training was like it has it has improved um and and now we go through an academy called western conservation law enforcement academy mm-hmm. and it's like i said it's an academy uh recruit academy just like say rcmp depot mm-hmm. but for game wardens and it's in western canada and ourselves alberta manitoba Saskatchewan. UConn we all join together to do one academy and it's just we only may have 10 or 15 recruits each but when you jam them all together you got a troop Mm -hmm. we share resources and instructors Uh, we come together and we provide our own perspectives on uh, and expertise on on the academy and so a a recruit will show up and you know the first couple days it's drill and getting yelled at and (laughs) push-ups and running and you know the pair and all that stuff so that's no different and then it's, then it's a series of courses, off-road driving course, boating course, problem wildlife course, tranquilizing course, uh, defensive tactics, cool. firearms, long arms, investigative uh, techniques, how to trap wildlife, uh, uh, f- swift water rescue, uh, ORV, tra- how to back up a trailer, like that's a good one yeah like, <laughs> i know a lot know, of people who should take that course <laughs> yeah um and that's just so there's i'm sure there's more than that uh, first aid and, so it's a bunch yeah. of stuff jammed in there and it's 16 weeks four months long and it's basically it's just a tip it's just the tip of the spear it's mm. just the start the real training is when they get back uh to their jurisdiction. So BC is very different than the other provinces in terms of how we get secondary approval from Crown before those charges get approved. Mm. Other provinces don't have that. We have that extra layer of, uh, of approval. Mm-hmm. And then BC is unique in different ways in terms of our law
2: mm-hmm.
1: and our authorities. You know, they may have different authorities than us. So they got to learn some of that when they graduate from that academy. Then they meet their field trainer, and then they do a minimum a year. It could be longer, but it's a minimum a year you're attached to the hip wow. to an experienced officer. And there's a book that you have to you know get through that kind of gives you the guidance of what we want to see you get exposed to. And it may not all be done in that area. You may have to go to other parts of the province to get that experience. Uh, for instance, like moose and big critters are not going to be done in Vancouver Island. Right. They, but they have elk and yeah. So, so, you know, it, it, minimum a year, do that, and and me personally, I think uh, you're not really understanding a fair grasp of it until five years in. That long, eh? Yeah, there's just so much there's to so it. So much. I mean, you you can get people that maybe are book smart or whatever, but to get the experience, to be in the trenches, you know, five years, I think to be you're you're now you kind of feeling comfortable with the scenarios and how, you know, you're always going to be stumped. I mean, you'll be at a gas station and someone walk up to you and ask you a question. You're like, I, I actually have to look that up. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. You know, people expect us to know everything, but we don't. Um, and the regulations are and each fishing and hunting and, and all the other uh, leads that we are, we're lead for, you know, if some, if someone's having a, a fire and mm-hmm. they need a, us to go deal with the fire during a fire ban where we're going to that mm. someone's burning slash when they shouldn't be burning when there's an environmental file we're going to that mm. ORV uh we're the lead agency for that so there's you know not not including all the other stuff that we do with helping the local police with emergency situations and you know in small towns there's only so many cops and you know if they need a hand we we get called mm. search and rescue need an extra boat we know the area we're well equipped we have all the communications devices we're plug and play we're like the swiss army knife of law enforcement we can do it all that's pretty cool boats quads drones orvs snowmobiles you know and then there's the these recruits still have to go through avalanche safety and snowmobile training and ice rescue and Lots and lots of training. And then there's all the law enforcement side that's more specific to BC and getting all of that done. And then, so now they've got all of this stuff and they mm-hmm. got to retain it and, and then be deployed. And then they get sent out and we'll see how it goes. Yeah. And then you get sent out and you're on your own. On your own. And
0: you're dealing with... Lord knows what. Yeah, just average anglers and hunters that are maybe bending the rules a bit, maybe ignorant, or maybe people that
1: are outright poaching and doing illegal things, and
2: yeah,
0: knowingly so. Yeah,
1: yeah. And for me, like, like I've trained a number of recruits, and I'm a use, one of the use enforced instructor on that cadre, mm-hmm. and I also train at the academy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, f- knowing your authorities as an officer and knowing the legislation. And also why, so that uh, Hunter Fisher asks you, why do we need to have no barbs on the river? Mm. Understanding why that regulation is there
2: Mm. and
1: trying to explain that to the public so they can now buy into that versus just a rule. There's a reason for it. This is the reason. Mm -hmm. And then now they understand, well, why is there a motor vehicle closure here? This makes no sense. Well, sir, there's a reason the closure is here is because access there's a caribou herd here and it's very sensitive and having motor motivi- you know yeah, just trying to justify why that's in place
0: that'd be an interesting education piece for the government to put out just the why's yeah this is a rule why mm-hmm. here's a rule why i always want to know why like uh, so do i i agree it's important to know why then you understand and then you can tell other people
1: yeah i agree but yeah i mean t- you know so if you do encounter a, a CEO in the back country and um for me this I'm speaking from my perspective mm. honesty goes a long way and the minute you lie to me my discretion goes away yeah I have a lot of discretion and we have the ability to, to practice that discretion mm. um and if you're open and honest you know we're gonna work with the person
0: I don't have any patience for somebody who's dishonest yeah. I, I should imagine other people are like that
1: yeah I, I I'm too old man I, I've been around I been there and done that with previous life. And sure. I, I don't play the drama thing. Uh, I'm pretty straightforward. Yeah. I'd much rather someone just keep their mouth shut than lie to me. Yeah.
0: But, um, well, Ron, thank you very much. That was uh, some interesting questions from the public that came up there. I know there's some really interesting stories that are probably not for public consumption, but they were a lot of fun, really enjoyed going out with you yesterday, that was, uh, it was mm-hmm. neat to see what you do, what a day in the life of a CO looks like. And, um, I can see why the people here in Smithers say, this is our conservation officer and not the conservation
1: mm-hmm. officer. Thank you for, so much for being on this. Well, Silver thanks for water. having me. It's been awesome. And we'll see if there's appetite to do it again and go from there. I love it.